Peace and blessings. This is Muslims for Peace podcast. You have tuned into Muslims for Peace podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Medina Benjamin founded the women's peace group Code Pink. She will be speaking on her new book, Kingdom of the Unjust, behind the U.S.-Saudi connection, which explains the central role of Saudi Arabia in the ideology and funding that was central to a large portion of the terrorism of 9-11 and continues to play a central role. Her book is available at the back of this room. I encourage you to please purchase her book. Um, I have read excerpts myself, and I want to say it's a, a nice, uh, easy read, so I encourage you all, please, to, to purchase her book. Uh, Medea? Thank you so much. Is this too loud? Very good. Uh, for the tremendous honor to come and be with you today. Uh, I really want to thank Muslims for Peace for inviting a Jew like me. Um, <laughs> I want to thank everybody who came to give us those beautiful blessings. And just looking around the room and seeing the diversity that is the beautiful bouquet of the human family uh, makes me feel very um, happy on a very sad day. And um, when we look back 15 years, uh, we certainly look back with sorrow at the tremendous uh, destruction of 9-11. And we look back with sorrow at every day since then because of the way that we, as a people, have reacted to 9-11. I want to thank the mayor for calling this group a patriotic group. But I also want to say that um, one of our great founding fathers said that dissent is the highest form of patriotism. And I hope I won't be too controversial. <laughs> in saying that I am really, really disappointed in the way my government, from the Bush administration to the Obama administration, has reacted to 9-11. As a peace activist from the time I was 16 in high school during the Vietnam War, I knew war was wrong. I saw how wrong it was back then and when 9-11 happened, I saw the TV after 9-11 in the following week already talking about invading another country. And I thought, 9-11, we should go after the people who attacked us. The people who attacked us were individuals. Let's find who those individuals were and go after them and bring them to justice. Why were we talking about invading another country? 
And so then the US went and invaded Afghanistan. And there were all these patriotic things on our TV screens about these wonderful planes that we were sending over there and the most wonderful smart bombs we had that were just targeting the right people. And I don't know about you, but I think it's an oxymoron, smart bombs. Mm. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I sat watching the TV screens transfixed, and I said, as a peace activist, I don't believe it. And I'm going to get on a plane, and I'm going to travel to Pakistan, go overland into Afghanistan, and see for myself if indeed these smart bombs were just targeting the, quote, bad guys. And I went a week after the US invasion of, of Afghanistan began. And at great risk, went into the war zone. And what did I find? But thousands of people streaming out, having lost their homes because the bombs were killing people in their area, and finding people whose loved ones had been killed by our smart bombs, loved ones who had nothing to do with 9-11. And I went back to Afghanistan after that with families who lost loved ones on 9-11 because I knew their voices were the only voices that our government was going to listen to at that time and our media was going to listen to. And they went there and found people who they said felt just like them because they too had lost loved ones to senseless violence, but at this point it was the violence of our bombs. And they came back and lobbied hard in our government to say war is not the answer. Go after the individuals. Stop attacking countries. And they also said to our government, create a compensation fund for the families of the innocent Afghans that we have killed. Because if indeed all lives are precious, what about their lives? What about their families? What about the widows left with no breadwinner in the fam family? And we did manage to get our government to create a $40 million compensation fund. But then began the drums of war again. And in this case, it was the drums of a war to invade a country that had absolutely nothing to do with 9-11, and that was Iraq. And we said, how could this be? And when the US was cheerleading for attacking Iraq, I got together with a group of women and said, let's go to Iraq and see, indeed, if there are weapons of mass destruction or how we might better deal with this. And we went to Iraq at the very time when the US was threatening to invade Iraq. And what did we do? We met with all kinds of Iraqis who said, yes, we have a terrible dictator, Saddam Hussein, as a leader, but no, we do not want the US to come in and liberate us because that's not the way liberation happens. It doesn't happen through bombs. It happens through people rising up to change their own governments. And we met with weapons inspectors. And the weapons inspector said to us, there are no weapons of mass destruction here in Iraq. And we went home, and we met with our elected officials. And many of them said, we don't care what you found. We don't care what you say. 
the atmosphere was one that was so charged after 9-11 that invasion and militarization and the military aggressive response was the one that somehow felt patriotic. And so despite the mass movement that was created to, to try to stop the invasion of Iraq, our government went ahead and invaded Iraq with the consent of most of our elected officials. And look where we are today. Look what that invasion of Iraq has wrought. The poor Iraqis who have suffered so much, perhaps even a million of them dead, as a result of that invasion. And where Iraqis, under the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein, had actually gotten along between Shia and Sunni. When I have a friend, Yanar Mohammed, who has a women's organization in Iraq, her father was Sunni, her mother was Shia, she said it never mattered when they were growing up. I said, what's the main thing that you think is the legacy of the US invasion? She said, hatred. We learn to hate each other. We learned to hate the Sunnis. We learned to hate the Shia. We learned that we were somehow supposed to be different and hate each other. That's the legacy of the US invasion. And we certainly see that full scale in Iraq today. We certainly see that with the creation of new terrorist groups, each one worse than the rest. And so, we look today at the military response 15 years later. A military response that has led us to the point where just in the last few weeks, the US has bombed in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, in Afghanistan, in Yemen, and in Somalia. And has terrorism ended? It has just grown. It has just spread. We are part of the problem. The US military response is not the solution. When are we going to learn after 15 years? So when I look around and see what can the US do? Well, there's many things that we can do. And one is, to stop supporting repressive governments. And we can talk about numerous repressive governments, but there's one that stands out above the other ones. And that one is Saudi Arabia. It is quite remarkable that after 9-11, we don't say, 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. We don't question why just days after 9-11, when commercial flights weren't even flying, 140 Saudis were whisked out of this country. We don't question why the country that is most responsible for the most extreme, intolerant form of Islam is the US ally. And I say this with great respect and love for Muslims. And I say this as not wanting to feed at all into the Islamophobia that is so dangerous and so spreading in this country today. 
I do this to distinguish between the vast majority of Muslims who are absolutely peace-loving, wonderful people practicing a peace-loving, wonderful religion. I do this to call out the dangerous sect of Wahhabism that is at the basis of the foundation of the Saudi state. And let's recognize that this Saudi state, going back to the 1970s, came together as a marriage of convenience between the intolerant interpretation of Islam by Muhammad Wahhab and the very militaristic, greedy, aggressive Saud family that thought, aha, if we come together, we can use this religion to justify our conquest and went on marading through the Arab Peninsula until finally, in the early 19. 30s, they managed to take over almost the entire peninsula and the holiest pl places for the Islam world of Mecca and Medina and declare the kingdom of Saudi Arabia based on this one family and this one interpretation of Islam. Well, that probably would have been swept away by history had it not been for the discovery of and here we bring in the Western world, the United States, the company that today is known as Chevron that went exploring in Saudi Arabia, discovered more oil than they ever thought imaginable. And there developed this relationship with the United States <coughs> called security for oil. You sell us the oil, we provide you with security. And what that means is we will secure that your abusive kingdom with your intolerant religion will continue to go on year after year, decade after decade. And this is US administrations, Republican, Democrat, it didn't matter. There was a deal made with the devil. And so we fast forward today. And what we see is it's time to really take a look at this because we will never disentangle ourselves, much less the violence in the Middle East, if we don't look seriously at who our allies are. Saudi Arabia, as I did the research for this book, and I meant the book to be a basic primer, just a very simple question and answer form for people to understand what is Saudi Arabia like. And some of the basic questions are, answer it by looking at, is there freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly? No, not at all. Are there elections in Saudi Arabia? Is there a parliament or a congress that's elected in Saudi Arabia? What happens, no, the answer is no, by the way. <laughs> what happens to people who start questioning that there's one family that's appropriated this country in the vast wealth, oil wealth? Well, you look at somebody like Raif Badawi, a blogger, 
who happened in his blog to start saying maybe we should be more open and tolerant and have a discussion about the future of our country. And what did he get for that? A punishment of 10 years in prison and a thousand lashes. And his lawyer, who said, tried to defend him, Walid Abu Khed, what did he get? 15 years in prison. Saudi Arabia, a country known as one of the most aggressive users of the death penalty, and what is the most prominent way that they kill people in Saudi Arabia? Beheadings. You look at ISIS and you say, where did they get this from? Look at Saudi Arabia. As I was doing for the research for the book, I found a young man, 17 years old, a nonviolent dissenter, had been sentenced to crucifixion. And I said, what does that mean? And it turns out that they have, for extreme cases, where they will behead somebody and then put them up on a post with the head dangling on the side and leave them in three days for a warning to the rest of the people. What kind of ally is this that the United States has? What kind of ally do we have when it's a country where women are not even able to drive? The only country in the world where women can't drive, where there is a guardianship system that from the day you were born till the day you die as a woman, you have to have a male guardian who has to okay the most significant things of your life. And if you have a good guardian, great. You can go to college, you can do all kinds of things, you can have a very nice life. If you have a bad guardian, no. What kind of country is it that's built on the backs of migrant workers? A third of the people in Saudi Arabia, 10 million out of 30 million people, are migrant workers coming from poor countries, people very desperate to make more money so they can send it back home to their families. And because of a system that is really like indentured servitude today, where these migrant workers come in and they are basically owned by their employer. They can't, if they find out, wow, this is a bad deal. This is not what I bargained for. They're not paying me what they said they'd pay me. They don't even give me a day off. They're abusive to me. They barely feed me. I want to go home. Guess what? I can't go home. You can't go home without an exit visa, and the only one who can give you an exit visa is your employer. This is the system that this country is built on. Our ally. And so if you look at an issue that is supposed to be very important to people in this country, another issue, freedom of religion. Here you have a country that's a theocracy. It's built on religion. You would think that they would be tolerant of other religions, right? No. The Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia, is the only country in the world where it is illegal to build a church. And you say, well, maybe everybody's Muslim. Don't worry about it. They're not. I talked about 10 million foreign workers. Two million of those foreign workers are Christians. They are not allowed to build a church. Until 2004, it was illegal for somebody who was Jewish to even enter Saudi Arabia. And what about people who are not religious? Atheism can be punishable by death in Saudi Arabia. 
Now, there is a law in the United States that was passed in 1998 called the International Freedom of Religion Act. And it says, we don't want to have great relations with countries that don't allow people to freely practice their religion. And so every year, we're going to take taxpayer money, and we're going to do a study and see who are the worst in terms of intolerance towards other religions. And we're going to sanction those countries. So every year, the study is done. And guess what country comes out every year as among the worst of the worst? Saudi Arabia, just like North Korea does, Burma has. Well, those other countries get sanctioned. Saudi Arabia does not get any sanctions. And I wondered why. And finally, I talked to people who had passed the law and said, why doesn't Saudi Arabia get sanctioned? And they said, oh, because the State Department back in 2004 passed an indefinite waiver so that Saudi Arabia would not have to be accountable. You just really have to shake your head and wonder, how has this happened? And then let's look around Saudi Arabia in the world. We know that the Saudis have taken a lot of the petrodollars and spread it around to spread Wahhabism around the world. Anybody who's been to Pakistan, any Pakistanis here? You know, <laughs> yes. I, when I was on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan, I went to visit some of these. And the most intolerant form is, of Islam is the one that is being preached in the madrasas that the Saudis have funded. And the Saudis bring teachers and they bring imams and they have them study in Saudi Arabia and then they send them back to preach or teach this intolerant form of Islam. And then the Saudi money is used to, buy, uh, to uh, produce textbooks and send these books all over the world. And the Saudi government was very embarrassed when it came out that ISIS and the territories that it controlled were using the Saudi textbooks. <laughs> Quite embarrassing. And in WikiLeaks cables that we see from Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton herself saying, this is a big problem. We've got to do something about it. The Saudis are, fund are spreading extremism, and they're funding extremist groups. Well, what did uh, Hillary Clinton do about it? <laughs> As Secretary of State, authorized massive sale of weapons to Saudi Arabia. So here we have the Saudis spreading extremism. And what about Saudi policy in the neighboring countries? Well, remember the Arab Spring when there was so much hope that there were going to be new countries that were going to overthrow dictatorships? Well, the Saudis were very worried that that idea of democracy was going to spread to Saudi Arabia itself. And in fact, the Shia minority, who have been constantly oppressed in Saudi Arabia, saw it as a chance to rise up against this abusive government and were immediately crushed by the Saudi military. And in neighboring countries like Bahrain, where they had been living under a very abusive caliph, minority regime abusing the majority, People rose up and said, this is our time to overthrow a dictatorship. 
and it was beautiful, and it was like in Tahrir Square in Egypt. It was totally peaceful, and it was people coming together, both Shia and Sunni, to say, we can do this. And they built up like our Occupy movement, an occupation in the main Pearl Roundabout, and they said, you know, this is our moment, until the Saudis came in with U.S. tanks, rolled in and crushed the democratic uprising in that country. And then look today what they are doing in Yemen. Heartbreaking what is happening in Yemen today. Already such a poor country. And Yemen, the same kind of thing where people rose up and thought they were going to overthrow a dictatorship and build a more democratic country. And instead, what happened is the different factions inside Yemen started fighting with each other. The Saudis said, "Uh uh-oh, our nemesis, Iran, is going to gain a foothold in Yemen. We better get in there and do something. And what they did was in March of last year start a bombing campaign bombing, 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 bombing this poor country of Yemen, turning millions of people into refugees in their own country, killing thousands of innocent people, making 80% of the population dependent on humanitarian aid if they're not going to starve, turning it into what the UN called a human catastrophe. And of course, doing it with U.S. weapons, with U.S. logistical support, with U.S. refueling of Saudi planes in the air, and with U.S. diplomatic cover. And so at this moment, when unfortunately our media is not covering enough what is happening to Yemen, but at least because of the war crimes that are being committed, there is finally more attention being paid to the U.S.-Saudi connection. And in Congress right now, instead of the normal year after year just rubber stamping another sale of weapons to Saudi Arabia, there are some people who are questioning it. And they're saying, why have we given, just under the Obama administration, $110 billion dollars of sales of weapons to Saudi Arabia, let that sink in. $110 billion dollars of sales, huge amount of money. If at one point our relationship with Saudi Arabia was based on oil, we only get 13% of our oil from Saudi Arabia anymore. It's very little, we could get it from elsewhere. Saudi Arabia is now more important to us as purchasers of our weapons. They are propping up the military-industrial complex of this country. They are the largest weapons purchaser of the United States with the largest weapons sales ever in the history of our country going to Saudi Arabia. And finally, some people in Congress are waking up to this disaster. And we have in Connecticut, Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat, along with the Republican from Kentucky, Rand Paul, who have just introduced a resolution and said, when the administration right now is calling for another $1.15 billion in weapon sales, I think it's time to stop it.
And in the House, we got 64 members of Congress to call for at least a debate in the uh, halls of Congress about whether this is a good idea. And so I hope as you leave, you might grab a piece of paper that we have out there with the numbers to call for your congressperson and the senators. It's one number for the, the switchboard. And please tell them enough is enough. No more U.S. weapons sales to Saudi Arabia. Yes. And so another really interesting thing just happened this week that you may or may not have heard about it because it happened on a Friday afternoon. But that is that now both the House and the Senate have passed a, uh, a bill saying that the 9-11 family members should be able to sue Saudi Arabian government in U.S. courts. One might ask why it took almost 15 years for this to happen, and that would be a very good question. It is terrible that it took all this time. And you know what else is terrible? President Obama is threatening to veto this. He's threatening to veto it because he says, oh, if we let the Saudis be taken to court for potential crimes against humanity, what might happen to the U.S. in other courts in other countries? And indeed, if the U.S. has committed crimes, it should be brought to court. So why should we be afraid of the justice system? But the Saudis have another threat. They say, ah, if you let this go through, we will withdraw $750 billion that we have invested in your economy and we will bring down your dollar. It's a pretty hollow threat. It's a nasty one, but it's a pretty hollow one because oil sales are done in dollars, and the Saudis need a strong dollar. But imagine the nerve of the Saudi government to threaten the United States like that. And the 9-11 victims' families have said, how dare you threaten the United States like this? And have said to President Obama, Please do not veto this. And if he does, asking Congress to override that veto. It is time for the families to have their day in court. Yes. And also, one of the things that would happen if they're able to bring the Saudi government to court is that more information will be released about what happened on 9-11. Because let's face it, we still do not know. There are, according to former Senator Bob Graham, who was the chair of the Intelligence Committee in the Senate and who was the head of the, one of the two commissions that did extensive study about 9-11, Bob Graham recently said that there are about 80,000 pages of investigations about relationships that happen between hijacker families that have not been released. And he said, we need 
this information to get out into the public, and the only way it will get out is if there is litigation in the courts. So that's why this is so important. Now I want to close on the much broader picture, which is about the issue of militarization. I started out saying that militarization has not worked. I woke up this morning listening to um, NPR, and they had uh, Thomas Friedman on, the columnist. And I don't always agree with him, but a lot of times I do, and he says some really smart things. And he said, let's look at what has happened in this last 15 years of militarization, and where is the one place in the Arab world where things have actually gotten better where the Arab Spring actually led to a more democratic government. And he said the one place is Tunisia. Tunisia. One place in Tunisia. And he said it's the one place where the U.S. has not been involved. (laughs) What does that tell you? U.S. militarization is part of the problem. It is in no way justifying the 9-11 attack to say that one of the things Osama bin Laden most hated about the United States was having U.S. troops based in the Holy Lands. And in 1991, when there were 500,000 U.S. troops that went through Saudi Arabia during the first Gulf War, Osama bin Laden said that was the turning point in his life. The U.S. has over 800 bases around the world. You know how many foreign bases the rest of the world has combined? Yeah, well, 30. And the U.S. has over 800 bases. And many of the places where the U.S. has bases, the people don't want us there. And many people, as I travel around the world, say, Would you want a foreign base in your country? Should any country have a foreign military base? One of the things that the U.S. could do to save us a lot of money and make us a lot safer would be close the 800 bases we have around the world and use our military to defend us here at home. And as we look towards a new administration, whether it is Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, I think that either one of them, both of them, would continue on this path of militarism. I think that there is a momentum that the military-industrial complex has in this country You see it in the revolving door as I live in Washington. I see it. The generals who are on the inside then come out and they're on the boards of Northrop Grumman and Boeing and Lockheed Martin. And they have the ears of the people on the inside. And they're the ones who brief the presidents on a regular basis and say, we must keep troops in, we must sell these weapons, we must keep producing these. And then you know what happens. Even if we're producing weapons that have absolutely no value, like the stupid F-35 that's going to cost us a trillion dollars, these companies are so brilliant that they make parts of these weapons in every single congressional district. 
so that it then becomes a jobs program in the US. And then you see the corruption with the companies then having lobby groups that then give money to the Congress people and the Congress people then defend the companies as part of the jobs program and the wheels of militarism keep turning round and round and round and round. And we must stop it for the sake of rebuilding our own country. When the presidential candidates are talking about the things they want to do, even Bernie Sanders, who was so wonderful in talking about all the things that we need to change in this country, he's asked where the money's going to come from. There is one place where there is a hell of a lot of money that could be used to do positive things in our country around the world, and that is the military budget. Takes 54% of our discretionary funds. We need to cut that military budget so there's money to be spent on things like moving us into the green, sustainable, clean economy if we want to have a planet that we're going to even live on anymore. And when I look at young people and talk to young people about the great work they are doing in college, to be able to come out of college and do something positive for the world, and they leave college with an average of $35,000 in debt, you say, what kind of country is this where we can't afford to give people an education who they want it, when they want it? Education should be free for everybody in this country. And where is the money going to come for that? From the military budget. Come on, folks. Let's be real. So we are going to have to do a massive reorientation of the way we spend our money and the way we act in the world. And the only way we're going to be able to do it is if we build up a mass movement that recognizes that militarism is not the answer, that recognizes that the bloated military budget is robbing us from the things we need, like health care in this country, because as much as Obamacare might have been a step forward, it is not the place we want to go. We need a, a, a single-payer system of Medicare for all of us. And again, where's the money going to come from? It's got to come from cutting the military. We spend as much on our military as almost the rest of the world combined, and it makes no sense. And so as we move forward in a patriotic manner, knowing that we love our country and we love the rest of the world, heeding the, world, the words of you who came to speak and give us your beautiful prayer that everyone is equal in the eyes of God, then we must recognize that we can't go around killing people with drones. We can't go around selling people, quote, smart bombs. We can't go around with a militaristic response to the world and then believe that we are the moral people that are reflecting this idea that everyone is equal in the eyes of God. A foreign policy that reflects that idea is one that says one, two, three methods we will use in terms of dealing with the world is diplomacy, diplomacy, and diplomacy. 
So I end with a plea to you that no matter who comes into the White House, we have to rebuild the peace movement that we had under the Bush years when we could get hundreds of thousands of people out in the street to say no war. We have to extend the kind of interfaith work that you are doing here. We have to extend our ideas of no war to include no war in our streets, no militarization of our police, no assault weapons being sold to people in our country. We have to build a movement that says that we will treat the people inside our country and the people outside our country with the love we feel in our hearts for everybody. We will have a foreign policy that reflects that love, that kindness, that morality, that mutual respect. That is what will make us more safe at home. That is what will reduce the threat of more terrorist attacks here in the United States, and that will make us more loved in the world and more loving in the world. Thank you so much.